0: If you have a Bible with you, please open it to John chapter 11. In just a moment, we will begin reading in verse 17. Just recently, on December 14th of this year, a young girl in California named Olive alanye I believe that's how you pronounce her name, that was her middle name, passed away at age two. Such news is... Heartbreaking, even for many of us who have no idea who she is and who will never meet her. However, her tragedy does have an impact quite far-reaching for one of such small stature because her parents, Callie and Andrew, are well-known persons and uh, front people for Bethel Church in California. Many of you know um, Bethel uh, from the music ministry that they do they do. Uh, they are a very large church in Redding, California. Um, it is a fountainhead for Bethel music and many worship songs that are being sung even now throughout the world, uh, certainly throughout the United States. Um, but it is also a fountainhead for some very odd teaching. And one of the things that they, they were doing when they knew spread of this little girl's death is that her parents immediately uh, reached out on Instagram and decided to ask for prayer for the girl's resurrection. One of the things that they posted was this. We're asking for prayer. We believe in a Jesus who died and conclusively defeated every grave, holding the keys to resurrection power. We need it for our little Olive Alanye, who stopped breathing yesterday and has been pronounced dead by doctors. We are asking for bold, unified prayers from the global church to stand with us in belief that he will raise this little girl back to life her time here is not done and it is our time to believe boldly with confidence and excuse me to believe boldly and with confidence wield what king jesus paid for it's time for her to come to life frankly i don't have a problem with that i it's hard to imagine the pain they're no doubt still going through I understand that I understand the desire to have their little girl back two years old it's very young what I don't understand is what can best be called theological malpractice that's going on in that church that would lead them to seek the hope of their daughter being raised from the dead in the fashion in which they're asking for. It gives them false hope, I think, in this world and misplaced desires for good. It is a twisting of biblical teaching. Does Jesus heal the sick and raise the dead? Absolutely. Does that still happen? Well, of course. Of course. Whether you're a cessationist or not, whether you believe that miracles can happen, whether you, uh, not miracles can happen. Every Christian believes that miracles can happen. Whether you believe that people can still enable miracles, whether they've been given the gift of performing miracles, we all believe. Every Christian believes that that little girl will come up out of the grave. There's not a problem with believing in the resurrection. The question is whether she will be raised in this life only and doomed, therefore, to die again. Because that's what those parents are praying for. They're not praying for her, for her eternal salvation. They're not praying for her eternal life. They are praying for her to come back to them to live in this world. That question, whether that will happen, becomes trickier. And the answer to it depends on whom you ask and interpretations of relevant texts, which are not our goal or our purpose today. These are all good and fine questions. But as we come closer and closer to the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, as we've been working through John 11, we have to start to ask the question of what the resurrection of Lazarus actually means. Is it a pattern for us to follow? Is this the type of behavior that we should expect in the kingdom of God? I tell you with no hesitation that the people at Bethel seem to indicate that it is. That is almost the official teaching of the head pastor there. Is this something that we are simply to hold out hope for in a general sense, that maybe some people will be raised from the dead in this life? Is the raising of Lazarus something larger or smaller than these things? Why did Jesus raise Lazarus? I hope that we can find in this text, at least partly this week, the beginning to the answer of that question. In our text, Jesus is going to appeal both to our heads and to our hearts to see the purpose of what he is going to do. So if you will, read John 11, verses 17 through 37 with me. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? This is the word of our God jesus responds to two different sisters in two different ways one is intellectual one is focusing on the head one is focusing on what she ought to believe the other is clearly focusing on the heart let us turn first to martha and jesus's concern for the head jesus concern for the head passage begins by noting that lazarus had been in the tomb for four days there was an old Jewish superstition that the spirit would hover over the body of dead people for three days until decomposition started to set in, and then it would disperse. And so perhaps this is what John is getting at. The problem is that all of those superstitions are written down for us centuries after this, so we don't know if it actually reaches back this far. At the very least, what John is telling us is that Lazarus wasn't just like freshly dead. He had been dead quite a while. He is going to reinforce this point several times. He is dead, dead, dead. He hasn't swooned. He hasn't fainted. Okay? He's not in a very deep coma. He is more than dead. What we find is that many people then come to comfort the sisters, to console them concerning their brother, it says in verse 19. It is not uncommon for people to pay other people at this time to come and mourn for them. It's a weird cultural thing that we think is untactful and quite odd, but this is what they would do. But that doesn't seem to be what's going on here. These people don't seem to be paid to come and console Martha and Mary. They seem to simply do it because they love Martha and Mary. The family is likely well-connected, is likely very wealthy, and they apparently had many friends. And those friends have come out in droves to support the family during this difficult time. Notice also, although John has very difficult things to say about the Jews and very difficult things to say about the people in general, there is absolutely no negative connotation anywhere in this passage about the people who are mourning here. Now, there are mourners elsewhere in the Gospels, especially as Jesus is going to raise the little girl, right? As he does that, they mock him because she's dead these people aren't mocking him. They're trying to make sense of what they see, but John isn't painting them in a negative light at all. The crowds seem to provide two things. One, it's a good crowd for a miracle to happen, and so people can attest to the fact that this miracle has happened. And secondly, it's a really good demonstration of the impact of Lazarus's death. It's not just about the two sisters. It goes out to not just those who love Lazarus, but also those who love the sisters and those who are mourning for the sisters and those who feel the pain of the sisters as well. So Jesus comes and Martha runs out to him, the first one to meet him. She says very boldly and very plainly and very baldly, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. You'll notice that Jesus hears this twice, never once raises a protestation against it, never once offers an excuse never once tries to explain himself. Doesn't say that you're wrong. Martha goes on then to say something that is odd. She says, Yet, even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. When she says that, many of us are thinking that she's kind of balancing out the fact that if Jesus is there, he could have kept him from dying, but even now that you're here, he can be raised from the dead. It's unlikely that she thinks that way. I don't think that she thinks that Lazarus is coming out of that tomb at all until the last day. What Jesus turns around and says to her is about the resurrection, and she clearly indicates that for her, resurrections happen on the last day. Not only that, in the passage that we'll be talking about next week, in verse 39, when Jesus says, roll back the stone, she protests. That's not somebody who expects their brother to walk out. Rather, what she is doing is saying something along the lines of, listen, I I know that if you were here, he would have been healed. And I don't understand why you weren't here. I know we sent a note to you. I know that you didn't get here in time. But I do know this, that all of the things that I've seen, all of the things that I've heard, I know that whatever you ask God, God will give you. She says, Anyone in this world has a direct line to God. If anyone in this world can have their prayers answered, I know that it is you. In other words, she's saying, I know that this horrible thing has happened, but I still trust you. I still know who you are. Jesus, if he does exist as the Son of God, if he is indeed the Messiah, his will is good. And if he wants this, if this was his plan, if this was his desire, and Martha says, I will go along with it. This event apparently has not made her waver in her belief about Jesus. Would it yours? Jesus' response is fairly straightforward. He said, your brother will rise again, Martha says. I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. When Jesus says your brother will rise again, immediately our minds, because we know what's going to happen, go ahead to verses 43 and 44, and we expect Jesus to come and call him out of the tomb for Lazarus to rise up, the little bandages falling off behind him and, and coming up out of the tomb. But Martha's mind goes elsewhere. Martha's mind goes to something like Daniel twelve two. One of the first places in Scripture where it is prophesied that there will be a general resurrection of the dead. Daniel 12:2 says this, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And so he says, your brother will rise again. She says, yeah, yeah, I know. I've read scripture. I know that on the last day he will rise again. This is where her hope is. One would have to think that this is one of the reasons why Martha's not crushed. By this. It's clear that Martha loved him, and we ought not think that Mary loved Lazarus more than Martha simply because Martha's dealing with it in a different way. Mary is certainly crushed and crushed in a completely different way than Martha is. Martha's crushed by this, but she's not overwhelmed by it. And one of the reasons why she must not be overwhelmed by it is because she truly does believe that she will see her brother again, that he will be raised from the dust and from the dead. People need this kind of hope. You ever been around people who lost loved ones, one of the ways that they console one another is by talking about the fact that, wow, this person lives in your memories or they live in your heart. Well, okay, you kind of understand where that's coming from, but you kind of understand also that that's a pretty pale way to live. That The people whom you love have to be more than just your memories. They've got to be more than just what you loved about them. That doesn't make a person. Certainly doesn't make a life. Her hope is in the resurrection. So when Jesus responds to her again, he's not trying to overturn her response. He's not trying to make her think, no, 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 I'm actually talking about just a few minutes. Just hold on. We'll get to the resurrection at the end. But I, I'm just, in, just wait like 15 minutes. Just hold on, right? He's da- he doesn't say that. Instead, what he does is not overturn, but refocus what she thinks about this resurrection. He says, no, 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 you don't understand. I am the resurrection and the life. What he means is that if there is a resurrection, that resurrection in the last day, that happens because of me. That I am the reason why the tombs will be opened and the dead will get back up out of it. Your brother will be raised at the last day because I have the power of resurrection. I am the source of resurrection. Jesus and Jesus alone can make people come alive again. He alone is more powerful than the grave. He alone holds the keys of Satan and Hades, and he can lock up Satan whenever he wants to, and he can let everyone out of Hades that he so chooses because he is God on high. But that is only half of the story. Being the resurrection isn't quite enough. As even Daniel says, the dead will also be raised to shame and everlasting, everlasting torment. But instead, Jesus is not just the resurrection, he is also the life as a true and never-ending life, such life so that even if someone dies, he will truly live. Which is a very perplexing statement to say. Even if he dies, he will live. Many have died since then. Many people who apparently believed have died since then. One of the first things that you have to understand when you read scripture is the people who wrote scripture might have been vastly undereducated, but none of them were stupid. So when he says, even though they die, they shall live again, what John means by that cannot mean that, well, they don't really die. They kind of die. is like a zombie situation. He clearly doesn't mean that. What he means is that although they physically die, they will come back to life again, and they will live forever. And even in that intermediate state, they live before God. This is the same man, by the way, who wrote Revelation 24. He says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. If John is so facile in his thinking that to say that only those who truly believe will always live, that if you truly believe, you'll never taste death, it's amazing that he would have written something where people who didn't give up their, their souls to Satan. People who withheld, even to the loss of their heads, were not faithful before Christ. Being beheaded sure sounds like death, and not giving in to the sign of the beast sure sounds like faithfulness. What it must mean then is while they taste death in their mortal bodies for some time, true lasting death will never be theirs. There is a death that is quite beyond the cessation of brain waves and the beating of hearts. Jesus talks about this himself. Matthew ten "'Don't fear those who kill the body, "'but cannot kill the soul. "'Rather fear him who can destroy "'both soul and body in hell.'" So Jesus both controls and is the power behind the fact that he will keep alive even those whose bodies have perished and whose bodies waste away in the ground. But One might ask, why is Jesus needed for this? There's no mention of Jesus in Daniel. Can't we just have a resurrection without Jesus? Martha, certainly in what she says, can be true and in general. But the grave needs to be defeated. Sin must be overcome. Otherwise, there would only be a resurrection. But that resurrection would only be to death. There would forevermore be a resurrection to judgment and then only to death. If sin wasn't overcome, if death wasn't overcome, if the grave wasn't overcome, gravity always wins, friends. And the gravity of our souls is nothing more than the weight of sin that surrounds us you will always be sucked down by it. Unless Jesus can overcome that, unless someone can overcome that, there will never be life. Jesus says very clearly, he is both the resurrection and the life, and we need both. He is the great I am. He is the creator of all things. He is the water of life. He is the food of life. And now he is the giver of life. This resurrection then is nothing less than proof that what he has said he is is actually true and proof that what he is claiming to do in the future he can do now. It is a shadow of what is to come. It is a taste of what is to come. But it is not the real thing. When he looks at Martha and asks, do you believe this? She certainly confesses better than she knows. I believe that you are the Christ. I believe that you are the Messiah. I believe that you're the coming king. I believe that you are the one who is to reign over Israel and make all things right again. Certainly part of that was military, that he was to reign over the enemies of Israel. Little did Israel know, little did the Jews know their greatest enemy was death. But he would one day reign over it as well. And that he is the Son of God. Certainly, in saying that he is the Son of God, she does not possibly mean what we mean. And even what John wants us to mean when we say something like, you are the Son of God. When we say you are the Son of God, we mean you share the same essence with God the Father. You are generated from God the Father eternally, is the way that we tend to put that. But that's not what she means. She means simply, you've called him your dad. I'm going to call you the son of God because that's the way you refer to yourself and clearly you have this sort of unique relationship with him. She means nothing more by this than to say that you are an incredibly special person set aside to do the will of God. He was the promised one to come into the world. In all of this, Jesus is dealing with her and trying to get her to think through the implications of her belief in the resurrection and who he is. So this is what we need to know in our head. We need to know who Jesus is that he is indeed the great I am. He is indeed powerful over the grave and over sin and over death and he can call the dead up from the grave and he will one day give them permanent lives. Not permanent lives as floating spirits, but permanent lives in bodies where we can glorify God forever. His importance then is that he is the only one who can do that. There is hope in nothing else. You have no other pathway, no other Vehicle to get you to the resurrection, to get you to eternal life, but to Jesus. But that's not all that we need to know. Jesus doesn't just appeal to the head. He also appeals to the heart. Second thing we're going to look at is Jesus' concern for the heart. Martha leaves. Mary is called. The mourners went with her. Again, they're not being negatively pinned here. Simply are going Specifically, to comfort her as she weeps at the tomb. Her act of throwing herself at the feet of Jesus shows desperation and pleading, but also great affection for Jesus. It's not worship, but it's not not worship. She is broken and hurting, and she wants Jesus to know. So she says exactly what her sister says. Exactly what her sister says. in the Greek, there's a little change of word order. doesn't matter. It's almost like they planned it out. It's almost like they memorized what they were going to say. Both sisters loved loved their brother. Both sisters watched him die. Both sisters sent a letter to Jesus. Both sisters uttered the same thing when he showed up. But both sisters have wholly different ways of dealing with it. Martha comes and Jesus is speaking to her. Mary comes, throws herself at his feet, and doesn't want conversation. Jesus doesn't respond to her. He doesn't say exactly what he says to Martha. He doesn't come to her and even talk to her. He doesn't try to reason with her because that's not who Mary is. Jesus responds to them each differently because they're different people. He doesn't respond with his mouth. He doesn't respond with his head. He doesn't respond with logic, but he responds with his heart. He's clearly broken. Martha, looking for answers. Mary is looking for action or or reaction. Just as an aside, it'd be great if all of us could know one another this well. Because there are people who tell you things that don't want you to speak to them. They just want you to be there for them. Then there are other people who look at you like an idiot when you just sit there and you don't say anything to them after they say something important to you, okay? You need to know one another well enough to, to know how Jesus is going to respond to people like that. If we can respond like that to people. But the other good part of this is Jesus knows exactly how to respond to you that way. Scripture says that Jesus was deeply moved. It is quite a strange translation, that, based more on tradition than on anything else. The ESV, the NIV, most of the major translations say something along the lines of he was deeply moved. The 2009 version of the Holman Christian Standard Bible translated it better. There it translated this passage as he was angry in his spirit and deeply moved. He was angry in his spirit and deeply moved. They put a footnote in that particular version. The Greek word is very strong and probably indicates Jesus' anger against sins, tyranny, and death. However, for some strange reason, in the updated version of the Holman, they went back to deeply moved and troubled. It was simply a footnote that says that this might mean angry. I think it more than might mean angry. I think it probably means angry. Jesus is frustrated. He is hurting, and he is angry about what's going on. This word is sometimes mean to sternly warn or admonish somebody. Matthew 9.30. As their eyes are open, Jesus sternly warns them. He does exactly what he does here. The same verb is translated, sternly warns them, sees that no one knows about this. The same thing happens in Mark 1, 43. In Mark 14, it's used for anger or reproach. As Jesus is anointed, that expensive nard that was used, people are angry and upset. Two times in that passage, it says that they're angry and upset because great and expensive nard was used on him to anoint him instead of being sold and given to the poor and they reproached the woman who did it it has the feeling in a sense of a dad who knows that a child is about to do something silly or foolish or wants to keep them from doing something silly or foolish so sits them down and looks at them and says no you listen to me right that stern warning that can boil over into anger when that warning is not heeded that is exactly what jesus is feeling he is upset by what he sees and what he hears Goes on to say that he's greatly troubled. The word doesn't have any one meaning to it. It kind of has this sort of feeling of, of, of a very visceral, emotional response to something. When faced with war or danger, typically it's translated as terror. Psalm 2 5 uses this of the nations when the Son will speak to the nations in his wrath and he will terrify them in his fury. Matthew fourteen twenty six. the disciples have the same response. They are in a boat. The boat is going uh, th- across the Sea of Galilee, and they see Jesus walking on the water, but they think it's a ghost, and they are terrified. But it can also just mean this, this incredibly gnawing anguish or grief. We see it in Judges eleven thirty five when Jephthah sees his daughter for the first time coming out of the, the house after he makes the rash vow and he is in great anguish because of his daughter. In Lamentations 20, Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me. My stomach churns. is the same idea of what Jesus is going through here. In Daniel 2.1, Nebuchadnezzar's dreams leave him unsettled. Second Samuel 18.33, an incredibly interesting passage where David weeps for the loss of his son, And King David was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he wept, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, who was not a good man, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Just tormented, grieved over the loss of his son. Now, It's clear that he is both angry and upset. John is doing his best to give incredibly strong emotional language to what is going on in Jesus at this time. In other words, it's not a small thing. What's going on in Jesus, what he feels, and even the way it's being portrayed, is not a small thing. This isn't a light momentary affliction. This isn't a glancing blow that he got angry about and then came to his senses and was like, oh yeah, right, I'm here to raise him from the dead. Never mind, I'm good. This is something that clearly angers him. It's not a light anger blown away by time. It's a deep-seated fire in him. Both that moves him in anger and moves him in compassion. Notice, Uh, Directly after this comes that shortest verse in the Bible, famously, Jesus wept, three words in the Greek, two words in the English. Jesus weeps. Weeps over the effects of sin. Weeps over the mourning that is happening before him. While it is short, it is immensely important. Your God is not some sort of cold, reactionary, logical being. He is not a distant deity who overwatches the things that happen in this world and says, oh, that's a shame. Let's move on to the next thing. Jesus cares deeply about his people. He cares deeply about the people that surround them. He cares deeply and loves them and weeps over their death. He is clearly moved by what he sees. He's moved by friends mourning the loss of their brother. He's mourned by those who love them mourning their loss. His weeping ought to be important to us. He's not detached from the pain. He isn't above it. He doesn't just look at them and say, you don't understand the glory of God. You don't understand the importance of what I'm about to do. Why don't you settle down? No, instead he weeps with them. He sympathizes with you. The question then becomes, why would he be angry? And why would he be deeply moved? After all, he does know logically that what has happened is about to be undone and undone very well and really soon. In a matter of mere minutes, he's going to tell Martha to roll away the stone and he's going to call Lazarus out. What is his anger focused on and what are his tears spilling for? I believe that the Holman has it right in that little footnote, that it is simply the effect of sin being seen in the lives of his people. And not even Lazarus's sin. When we talk about God being grieved over sin, what we typically mean is that God is grieved because our sin is an affront to God. It is something that we do against him. It is a direct opposition to God. But Jesus here is clearly grieved not simply because Lazarus has sinned against him but because of the effect of sin seen in the world. He is grieved by the death of one that he loved. He is grieved by the effect that that has on the women who are standing by the tomb mourning by the friends that they have of theirs mourning for them as well is the power and the effects of sin in the lives of people. Where is their defense? Who's going to help Lazarus? Who's going to stop that tide? Who's going to help Martha and Mary? What, what kind of defense do we have against this? We can prolong age, average age, before death is, is skyrocketed in the industrial age. You know, the tricky thing about that is people still die. We can't prolong it forever. And no one wants to live like this forever in these bodies. Not yet 40 years old, man. This is already getting old. And I don't just mean I'm getting old. I mean the whole thing. It's getting old. As you go further and further on, we lengthen our lives. Sure, we can lengthen our lives, but it can't go on like this forever. We have no defense against it sisters don't the mourners there don't sin has absolutely nothing to stop it death has absolutely nothing to slow it down so Jesus is angry because the great enemy of his people has won again and it wins again and it wins again and so Jesus has come to end that. We sang last week, Joy to the World. Part of those verses are, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Indeed, like a rock thrown into a pond and the ripples radiating out from that The effects of sin are seen all throughout our world, not just in the fact that you will die because you are sinful before God unless Jesus intervenes in your life, but the fact that you are both a sinner and you are one who is sinned against. The devastation of sin finds its its effects in everyone's life. Everyone is both a victim and a victimizer. They both perpetuate sin against others and have it perpetuated against them. And so he has come to end the curse that now rages. The emotional response of Jesus shows that he does indeed care about this fallen world. He is sympathetic. He is able to cry out to the people of Israel, why would you die? Not in a cold and unempathetic way, but honestly pleading with them, come to know me, follow my laws, do what is right and good. Isaiah 63, 9. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. God cares about his people. He anguishes over his people. He feels the weight of their distress and their sorrow. Jesus here, even before the resurrection, is dealing with them, both in the heart and in the head. He wants to set Martha straight and make sure that she is understanding what is happening but he also wants Mary to know that he understands and sympathizes and empathizes with her. He knows what it is to lose. He knows the effect that sin has on people. He knows the devastation that has wrought upon them. So we wrongly focus on one or the other. So often today what we do is we focus on the heart, and we think that Jesus is here simply to be a, a shoulder to cry on, that he is here simply to sympathize with us without thinking that there might be a greater reason for the things that Jesus allows than simply for him to be able to be a shoulder for you to cry on. Many think up, many wrongly think that nothing can make our pain right and good if pressed. And we don't think that there's a reason for our pain and our suffering if we don't think that Jesus has a good end for those things. We either end up thinking that he doesn't care or is unpowerful to actually undo the effects that we see around us. Both of those are completely outside of the realm of the God of Scripture. He both cares and he is powerful to do something about it. But we ought not think for a second that our God is cold and distant, that he doesn't actually care, that he doesn't sympathize, that he doesn't empathize, that he doesn't be become grieved with our grief, and he isn't afflicted with our afflictions. They are his. Paul will go so far as to say, You are the body of Christ. When I stub my toe, I feel it. When you were hurt, he feels it. There's nothing wrong with that analogy. Both of these things are what makes Jesus such a great Savior. He doesn't look down on our little problems, He doesn't look down on our distress, on our mortal toiling as somehow beneath Him, but He feels what we feel. But He is also powerful, and capable of overcoming it. He puts an end to death, and he puts an end to sin, and he is able in his power to undo the very effects that sin reaps in our lives. So Hebrews 4.15 says, We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one whom in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus cares about you, and he is powerful to do what is right for you. You need to hang on to that. So what of little Olive in Bethel Church? Is it wrong to hold out for her resurrection? No. As a matter of fact, it's wrong to do anything but that. The problem, honestly, is not with our belief in the resurrection or that resurrections can happen. We just read that passage. If you believe in Jesus, you believe that he is the resurrection of life, you certainly should believe that he raised Lazarus from the dead. That's, a again, a spoiler. He will raise Lazarus from the dead. But Bill Johnson, the head pastor of Bethel, goes far beyond this. In in doing something that I just, as a pastor, I can't imagine how this actually plays out for him. It sounds nice on paper, but in practice, it ruins people. Answering a question on his website about whether God always desires to heal people. Always desires. Not like... Could God heal people? But is it always God's will that people are healed from paper cuts all the way to death? Johnson says this, How can God choose not to heal someone when he has already purchased their healing? Was his blood enough for all sin or just certain sins? Were the stripes he bore only for certain illnesses or certain seasons of time? When he bore stripes in his body, he made a payment for our miracle. He already decided to heal. You can't decide not to buy something after you've already bought it. There are no deficiencies on his end. Neither the covenant is deficient nor his compassion or promises. All lack is on our end of the equation. He's not talking about what's going to happen at the end of time. He talks about all of the sniffles I'm hearing from you all. He's talking about every little cough you've got. All of the deficiency, he says, is on your end. He then has the audacity to turn around and say, but it's not okay to blame people for their lack of faith. The deficiency isn't with God. It's all with us, but he doesn't ever tell us what that deficiency is. How are we supposed to overcome? He says you can't blame people for not having enough faith. God has purchased the miracle. He wants to use the miracle. We're the problem. Somewhere there's a disconnect. Can you imagine being the parent of a child who has died in a church like that? God wants her to be raised. All of the deficiency is on you. Friend, you will suffer, your friends are going to suffer. Your friends are going to die. You are going to die. Some of you horrifically, some of you peacefully, but you will die. We need to both use our head and our hearts here. Jesus wants good to come because he loves these people. He loves you, and he has the power to resurrect them from the graves, but he does that according to his will. We are not in the business of peddling Small miracles. What a weak solution to have that girl to have that girl raised from the grave so that her parents can dote over her instead of being with Jesus. And what's more, to know that that resurrection, if that is their hope, to not give them something better than that. This life is, is great. I don't want it to end. For me, I don't want it to end for you. But there's something better out there that Christ holds for them. This, this life cannot be all of it. Abraham wandered through the desert even after being promised a land because he knew that God had been preparing for him a land that was not made by human hands. He wanted something better than this place. Friends, if all you want is this world, you can have it. But what does it gain you to gain the world and to lose your soul? You will suffer. Your friends will suffer. Jesus promises us a better resurrection, which is full of life. Not simply marked by the weakest forms of life, but full of life. Wanting only wanting for nothing actually no sin or stain of sin left no tears no anguish no grief only goodness forever that is what jesus holds out for us and that is what we have to hold on to let us pray father what love you have for us we are indeed sinful before you not just dirty, but polluted and evil against you and rebelling against you and your law, forsaking your kindness. Yet even while we were sinners, Jesus Christ, your Son, you sent him to make an atonement for our sins, to forgive us and to grant us new life. This love is quite beyond our reckoning. It is a love that is freely given, a love that is greater than any other we might experience. Let us this day trust in that love as expressed in your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for us that we might live before you. Give us this knowledge and comfort us in this love. Let not the evil that faces our daily existence, not not the, the sin that presses all around us and the devastation of that sin, let not its effects turn us from you, but let us hold out our hope that Jesus will one day raise us into glory, into a goodness that knows no end. We ask this,